There's something that I need to acknowledge about this, the title of this series, If I Were God, I Would, dot, dot, dot. It really is an extraordinarily arrogant statement to say, if I were God. For it gives the impression that I could do a better job than God, or at least um, the only time that I would conceive of believing in God is when he conforms to what I am prepared to believe about him. As though what I am prepared to accept about God is really something that God should take note of. As though really I am God. And so it's an arrogant sermon series and title. And yet it's a question that I've heard many times in, in ministry. People saying, if I were God, I would. Or they use different words, but that's really what they, what they are saying and what they mean. Uh, in the U.S. state of Nebraska in 2008... Senator Ernie Chambers filed a lawsuit against God. Uh, only in America, right? He was seeking a permanent injunction, injunction against God's harmful activities. Uh, the suit was dismissed because God could not be properly notified, not having a physical address. The senator said, but God is all-knowing. The court itself acknowledges the existence of God, and since God knows everything, he has notice of this lawsuit. Um, but the judge finally threw out the case and saw sense, saying that the Almighty was not properly served due to his unlisted home address. Or perhaps uh, more seriously, Elie Wiesel, in his book, The Trial of God, describes a scene in Auschwitz during the Second World War where the Jewish prisoners put God on trial in absentia for abandoning the Jewish people. And their accusation was that God had broken his covenant with the Jewish people by allowing the Nazis to commit genocide. Uh, one of the, the great objections to the existence of God is the question of evil and suffering. And it's not a modern question, although it has come back into, uh, into, the, into the media more recently but it is not a modern question. It's been the cry of the human race for time immemorial. It's an ancient question. It's millennia old. And in fact, it's actually got a name. It's called theodicy. Theodicy is the problem of a sovereign God and the existence of evil and suffering. There's a whole book in the Bible given to the subject of theodicy. It's the book of Job. Look at what Job says about God in chapter 30 and verse 19. He throws me into the mud. I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. Notice this language. You attack me. It's strong language, that, isn't it? And perhaps um, you have felt like that before. Maybe you've wondered what you've done wrong. You've suffered, or maybe you are suffering, or somebody that you love is going through terrible suffering, and you wonder, where is God? Has he rejected us? Why is he passive? Uh, has he attacked us? Is he angry with us? Or perhaps it's confirmed for you in your mind that actually he doesn't exist, and he's not there, and that's all the evidence that's needed. It does seem logical at first glance to reason that if there is a God, then he can't be both all good and all powerful at the same time. 
If he is all-powerful, as Christians say, and he doesn't eliminate evil and suffering, then he must be evil. He's an all-powerful God who can't possibly be all-good because he doesn't eliminate suffering and evil and sin in the world. Or if he is all-God, uh, all-good rather, then he couldn't be uh, all-powerful. He wishes he could do something about the pain in the world, but really he can't, and his hands are tied. It is a serious question in our culture, and one of the main reasons in the West why people give up believing in God. Now, there are different ways to approach uh, theodicy and the question of suffering. Um, the approach that I'm going to take is going to start by talking to you about the way in which God is involved in the world. It's quite helpful for us to have straight in our minds how the world is governed. And so that's the first heading this morning. How is the world governed? Christians take the view that God is both all-powerful and all-good. The one doesn't cancel out the other. If that is true, how does he operate in the world? And there are three dominant views uh, in the world today about how God governs the world. The first view is called dualism. Uh, many people have the view that there are two equal but opposite powers, one good and one evil. Uh, there's a, I've got a little diagram to show you what that looks like. So there's God and the devil, essentially two gods, if you like. And uh, hopefully good overpowers evil in the end. The two beings are in cosmic battle, and uh, hopefully God will win. There are hundreds of millions of people in the world today who hold this view of how God operates in the world today. Many of them in our own country and on our own continent, for this is the dominant view of African traditional religion and Hinduism. But interesting to me is that this view of dualism has actually crept into the Christian church in places where sometimes the devil is given so much glory, so much attention, so much power, that you would swear that actually they believe in two gods and not one god. Sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking that this is how the universe is run. The devil is such a powerful being that, and although they wouldn't put it like this, his power is equal to that of God's. If you, you, you might hold this view if you think that all blessing comes from God and all suffering comes from the devil. That's dualism. There's a second view, and that is called monism, or absolute monism. Uh, it's the view that the world is governed absolutely and simply by one God who gets all the glory for the good and all the blame for the bad. Uh, again, there are hundreds of millions of people in the world who have this view. This is the prevailing view of Islam. And it's also crept into the Christian church. Um, you might have this view if you think if God is God, he's not good. And if God is good, then he's not God. Uh, at first, this view actually sounds right, that uh, there is a, a simple, absolute rule by God over the world. Um, 
But actually, it's not what the Bible teaches. Though we believe that God is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of the world, it's not the Bible's view is much more nuanced and complex than that. The Bible's view is called, thirdly, theism. And that's what theism looks like. There is only one God that is true. He has no rivals. As the creator, he is prior to all things in time. He is free from all limitations imposed on us bodily creatures by space and time. He is able to exert his power anywhere or everywhere for however long he chooses. We need never fear that we will go beyond his power to see or to know or to protect or to judge. Whatever he wills comes to pass, and nothing comes to pass except what he wills. There is no such thing as chance or luck or fate. And yet he does not govern the world as the sole, absolute, supernatural power. He governs the world by means of agents and representatives. That's how the Bible puts it. So I've got some letters there you can see. G stands for government. There's an example of an agent that God uses to govern the world. Look at Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. The government is God's servant. And God has outsourced governance to governments and to all human authorities. P stands for parents. It's another authority, another agent that God has in the world today to exercise his governance over children. And so children are called upon to obey their parents. The way children obey God is really by obeying their parents. And so God uses uh, agents. Some of those agents that he uses in the world are supernatural agents. And so the A there stands for angels. These are beings who are greater than humans, but less than God, who have delegated authority. Some are good, and God, and they, they do good in the world, angels. Uh, for example, I don't know if you know this, but in Matthew chapter 19, I should have put the verse up and I haven't. But in Matthew chapter 19, there is evidence actually that children have guardian angel, angels that look after them. Um, but some are evil, and the D obviously stands for the devil or demons. And they also are supernatural agents in the world today who are doing the will of God. Now that might sound difficult to swallow. Um, the devil is not an equal opposite power in cosmic combat with God. The devil is a creature that God rules over completely. One uh, English writer says that the devil should be thought of as a cabinet minister in God's cabinet, and he's, got a, he's a minister with a portfolio. Uh, he is his majesty's loyal opposition, as the opposition in Westminster is referred to. His job is to oppose God and God's people, and in so doing, unwittingly, he brings glory to God. 
He has a job to do for a, for a period of time. Consider the example of Job. Uh, the devil does his utmost to get Job to curse God. And how does the book of Job end? It, end, it ends with Job praising God. And God being praised, notwithstanding all that has taken place in Job's life in the course of those desperate 40 chapters. Now let's be clear, friends. God cannot have fellowship with evil, but he can use evil, and he can use and he does use evil agents in his government of the world. Consider this verse, Isaiah 45 and verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create a disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so the Bible's view is that God stands behind both good and evil asymmetrically, not in the same way. He stands behind good in such a way that he always gets the glory for it. He is always the source of good. But he also stands behind evil, not in, the way that, not in the same way that he stands behind good. He's not the source of evil. He can't be blamed for evil. But he can use evil as part of his plan to bring about good. And so even evil and suffering and sin has got a role to play in the world at the moment. It's not always going to be like that, thank God. But at the moment, that is where we live. And of course, the great example, the classic example of this is the story of Joseph, which you've heard, I'm sure, before from this pulpit. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, his brothers did what many older brothers dream of doing, selling their little annoying brother into slavery. And you know the story. He eventually becomes the prime minister of Egypt, the second most important and powerful man in the known world. And then his brothers, in a wonderful, delicious irony, come back to him decades later, begging him for food because they're in famine. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And eventually he reveals his identity to them, and of course they are terrified because what can he do to them? He could do anything he wanted to them as the prime minister of Egypt, the superpower of the day. And he says these words to them in Genesis chapter 50. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Can you see that the same act, one act, evil, selling him into slavery, was used by God for good, such that the whole world was rescued from famine, Reminds you of somebody else, doesn't it, who was also betrayed by someone as close as a brother and who was raised up as the saviour of the world. <coughs> Consider the alternative, friends. If God is not sovereign over evil, then he's not in control of this world. He's a lesser God, and he's a God who's not worthy of worship. No, the Bible teaches that God's control over creation extends even to the wills of men and to control of evil and sin and suffering. We cannot remove ourselves from God's sovereign 
and absolute power. Although men originate their acts of evil, they are not able to act contrary to what God willed should come to pass. Sinful people are completely within and under the control of the God of the Bible. If that were not the case, then sin would be a marvelous achievement. I wonder if you're willing to accept that God. Now, the question of God and suffering might interest you because you might be a Christian who has experienced suffering. <clears throat> and I don't want to be glib. <clears throat> there is something that is profoundly and deeply wrong with the world. But I do want to remind you that God is not to blame for suffering, for he made a good world. His original template for the world was declared as very good at the very beginning. God saw all that he had made, Genesis chapter 1, and it was very good. We are to blame for the suffering that, took place, that takes place in the world today. When we rebelled, we became the arbiters of what is good and evil, and the wheels came off in the world. God's order was disturbed, was inverted, and the relationships that he had set up that were good were fractured. Man's relationship with God, man's relationship with woman, and their relationship with the environment. These broken relationships are the cause of all suffering in the world today. But I want to say to you that our suffering has meaning. <coughs> Excuse me. To say that because of the reality of suffering in the world, I won't believe in God really doesn't help you. For what is the point of suffering in an atheist worldview? <clears throat> Those who don't accept the Christian gospel can easily poke holes or point out inadequacies in what I'm trying to present today, but what alternative view offers a better explanation, I wonder? <clears throat> Hindus view, the Hindu view of suffering is that it's as, the, as a result of accumulated karma. The Buddhist view of suffering <clears throat> is that it has to do with attachment and desire. The Muslim view of suffering is that it has to do with submitting to Allah's will. The African traditional religionist view of suffering is that it is as a result of witchcraft or the ancestors. And so atheism really does need to be humble, actually, at this point in the discussion, because it has no answer to the point of suffering. It's just molecules, just the way the world is. And so while Christians struggle to answer everything to do with theodicy and the problem of pain in the world today, the Bible offers meaning and purpose in our suffering, which makes it bearable. Why do Christians suffer? Well, the Bible has quite a lot to say about this, and I can only have time for two this morning. First of all, Christian, Christian suffering results in perseverance. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings <clears throat> because we know that suffering produces perseverance. <clears throat> One Christian author said it like this, take away from her some precious relationship 
frustrate some hope, inflict some pain, and then we will all publicly see whether or not she is a real worshipper of God. Face him with serious loss, strip away his security, dent his status, and then the real person will step out and we'll see. I think that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5. Only when worship comes at a cost can we tell if it's real or true. I think Leon referred to that earlier in his interview. Suffering is the fire that refines and reveals whether or not you really love God and whether or not you are in relationship with him. But there's a second thing that the Bible invests our suffering with, and it has to do with discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 is the key chapter in the New Testament on this. Endure hardship as discipline. Endure suffering as discipline. God is treating you as children. What children are not disciplined by their father? I wonder if you've thought about the fact, and I find this a helpful thing, that the evidence that God loves me is not the absence of suffering in my life, but the presence of hardships, because he's disciplining me. He's training me. And this is what it means for Christians to live by faith. In our suffering, will we trust the Lord that he is doing good in us? That a day will come when we can look back, and as Leon said earlier, we don't wish it on anybody, but I wouldn't exchange what it developed in my heart for anything in the world. But you might also be asking the question about suffering because you might be looking for a reason to not believe in what Christians say is true. And this has become very common in social media today. And I want to speak to you for a moment, uh, if that's you or if you know somebody who is using the existence of pain and suffering and sin and evil in the world today to not believe in God. Imagine if God announced that tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock he was going to eliminate all suffering, evil, and sin in the world. I reckon we wouldn't, we wouldn't sleep tonight, would we? It would be such a wonderful thing to look forward to. It would be a great reason to get up on a Monday morning. But then consider this. Have you caused anybody any suffering ever in your life? See, when we, are, when we are honest, we have to say yes to that question, don't we? We are all not only victims, but also perpetrators of suffering and evil in the world. For we all sin, and we are all selfish, and we all hurt people who we least want to hurt, people close to us, people that we love. And so it's an important thing, it's an honest thing to admit that we are not only victims but also perpetrators. So if God is going to remove all suffering tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, can you see the problem? He's going to have to eliminate me and you. And you know, the Bible says that a day is coming when he will eliminate all evil and suffering and pain and sin. And so the question now changes from how can a loving God allow suffering to 
on the day that God does remove all suffering, how will I survive on that day? And the answer to that question, dear friends, is that I am to put my trust in the God who suffered. You know, it's an amazing thing that God, the God of the Bible, does not exist above the suffering and the evil of the world, but actually entered into it. He's not aloof to suffering and pain. He knows about it firsthand through the person of his son, who entered into the world and suffered unjustly and unspeakably in order to eliminate pain and suffering at some future point. It was to deal with evil and suffering and pain, but it was also to deal with your sin and my sin, that he submitted himself to the suffering of the world. The God that we preach is a suffering God. And this is unique in all of the world's religions and worldviews. It turned the Western world upside down, for it was the first time in history that any God suffered and died for his people and for the good and the salvation of others. In history, people die for the good of God in the name of war, perhaps, or human sacrifice, perhaps, but not Jesus, not the God of the Bible. He is no stranger to suffering, and he did it for you and for me to forgive the suffering that we have caused. So that one day when he does remove suffering and pain, we can be part of what it is that he's doing in the world. And so I want to encourage you this morning to, as I close to think about where you stand with this God who suffered this morning. You can can be standoffish with him. You can keep your distance. You can say, well, he's got to prove himself to me. What about all the pain and the suffering? Or you can see that he has proved himself by entering in, rolling up his sleeves, getting his hands dirty, subjecting himself to the same pain and suffering, worse than any of us have experienced because it included the forsakenness of his father as he hung on the cross. You can embrace that God this morning. His name is Jesus. And it's not a difficult thing to do. It's an easy thing for us to do, actually. All you need to do is to to say a a prayer and to mean the prayer in your heart. Look at this prayer. I've, I've written one for us. Maybe this is for you this morning. Just look at those words for a moment, and then I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow with me, and I'll say those words. And maybe you want to make it your prayer this morning as you take a step towards God rather than keeping him at arm's length. Now, friends, I'm very aware of how inadequate this talk is on the subject. There's so much more that needs to be said. Uh, There's so much more that needs to be discussed, and I really want to make myself available. If you'd like to have a conversation with me or a coffee with me, I would love you to reach out to me, and I, would, I will drop everything to spend time with you uh, if you would like to take this further. So please would you make use of that offer, a sincere offer. But uh, maybe you want to make this prayer your prayer in the privacy of your own heart. Let's pray. Dear God, 
I have contributed to the suffering in the world because of my sin. Thank you that Jesus suffered in my place on the cross to forgive my sin. Please help me to put my trust in him and help me from today to live for you. Father, I just want to pray for anybody who might have said that prayer this morning and meant it in their hearts, that you would draw near to them now, assure them of forgiveness and of your presence in their life. And I pray for those who might still be um, wanting to keep you at arm's length, that you'd be gracious to them as well, that you wouldn't let them go, that you'd help them to keep wrestling, to keep asking, and not to give up in that journey. But how thankful we are to you, dear Father, for all that you have done by sending your Son into the world, who was not spared suffering, who didn't exist above suffering, but submitted to it was the very pinnacle of suffering in the world as he hung on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you are not against us, but that you are for us, in spite of how sometimes we may feel. Thank you that you have answered us in our cry to you. Thank you that you put your righteous wrath on Jesus instead of us. And thank you for the glorious future that those who trust in Jesus have to look forward to. A future where every tear will be dried, where there'll be no more pain or suffering. And so we commend ourselves to you now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.